Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 14th of June, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Uh, well, lockdowns, are we getting out of one? No, this is the last lockdown, so they can't bring us out of it because then they couldn't put us back into it again. But anyway, uh, this is uh, the latest from Boris. Come on, folks, one last heave. Now, I'm not clear whether that means that he's expecting the most of the UK to throw up or uh, whenever he ha does his six o'clock live stream this afternoon, but he is basically going to announce uh, that there will be no uh, lifting of the lockdown uh, as expected on the 21st of June. Uh, and that's instead going to be postponed until the 19th of July. So another four weeks, and then there'll be another four weeks and another four weeks and so on until we're in the autumn. Uh, but anyway, uh, this is because of concerns over the Delta variant first identified in India, uh, as they keep, like to say these days. Um, and he's going to plead with us all for one last heave, as you can see on screen at the moment. So what's this mean? This means that uh, pubs are going to uh, be restricted, continue to be restricted to table service only. <laughs> uh, that means that everyone who can work from home must do so. That remains in place. Uh, Theatres and other indoor venues restricted to 50% capacity uh, and nightclubs remain closed, but there's likely to be some kind of loosening of the situation for weddings, apparently, because uh, uh, which at present can only uh, deal with 30 guests at a time. Now, what was interesting about this, Brian, was that uh, uh, this delay was agreed not by the cabinet, uh, but by a collection of four or five people. So it was Boris Johnson, uh, Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, uh, Michael Gove, the Cabinet Office Minister, uh, Matt Hancock, and uh, and that was following uh, briefings by uh, Chris Whitty and uh, Patrick Valance, the Chuckle Brothers. So uh, there was no, it was not a Cabinet decision. That it seems that there are only uh, three or four people now running the country. Well, yeah, who are these people? Perhaps we should throw that back to David. David, you came up with the expression, the government of occupation. We're now seeing a government of occupation, or is it simply a criminal cabal running the country? It's getting ever more complex because it's partly a scientific and medical dictatorship. It's partly run by international bodies. Those international bodies are steered and turned by the huge tax-exempt foundations. And uh, you can, you can um, chase the, the, the line of command up through various corporate hierarchies. But what you don't find anywhere is anything that looks like liberty or anything that looks like democratic control, if you remember when that used to be viewed as a good thing. Indeed. And the other thing I think we'll just point out that although the uh, banking, big banking um, cartel, the international banking cartel has clearly been behind the G7 summit, there's almost no comment of what their role has been and what their input has been into those talks. So I think there's more to come out on that. Uh, but let's have a look. Uh, definitely closed down for UK, but a very different set of rules for um, the elite in Carbis Bay. And thank you very much to the person who pointed out the Sky News clip because uh, it was very revealing. Um, so I've taken a sequence of images from the video, but we will see the video in a minute. Uh, but uh, just have a look at what's going on here, if you're not too sure. Obviously, we've got the great and the good walking up. Um, well, it's not a red carpet. It's a beach mat. Um, they couldn't put it in a straight line because that would be a bit like the garden path. So it goes in a gentle curve. Here they are coming up from uh, uh, presumably paddling, dipping a toe in the ocean. 
And uh, we just have a look at the important bit, which is no social distancing at all there. So if you think that that might be bad, well, it gets worse because uh, Creepy Joe was getting pretty creepy with uh, Macron. So we're now into hugs and cuddling, which for the rest of the nation has, has been banned. So we've clearly got one set of rules for the elite and another for the country. So a few questions. Did they all have PCR tests? They haven't been through quarantine at all, Mike. And um, have they actually been vaccinated? These are all good questions. They are very good questions. But of course, uh, the press are not asking these, press and the media are not asking these questions. This is just the stuff that's thrown back at the ordinary people in UK. So clearly we've got an elite here hugging and cuddling each other and whis whispering uh, love verses in the yeah. sweet nothings. That's yeah. the phrase. Uh, so we've got another shot here just to make sure we can we can see how this goes on. So it's pretty blatant. Well, let's have a look at the Sky's news clip itself. Uh, we don't need any um, sound on this, but it should run okay. Here they are. Uh, so they're trudging up from the beach with a spring in their step, or maybe not too much. And then as they progress, there's clearly grouping up, close proximity. Here's Macron with his uh, hand on Joe Biden's back. I think they've got arms around each other and there's another gentleman come in to make it a threesome. Um, so just total breach of any of the rules that have been pushed at uh, the UK. Now, what's interesting about the page I've put this up on is that it's very clean. It's the Sky News page with the embedded in interview. So what did Sky News have to say? Well, this is what they had to say on that video clip. There wasn't much social distancing going on as Emmanuel Macron and Joe Biden walked arm in arm at the G7 summit. Um, sorry, pro promoting, promoting, yeah. Yeah, promoting the fake political agenda of climate change. So, um, David, just fascinating, isn't it? That um, is there this serious pandemic uh, ravishing the country or is this just a, a scam for the public? Well, it must be a scam for the public because I've seen the official photograph with the Queen and they were all spaced out and the Queen was sitting in a little chair and about eight feet away there was someone else sitting in a little chair and then, then eight feet further back was a row of people standing. They were, all, they were all spaced out. That was the official photograph. It was saying, look how socially distanced we are. And now we've seen them on the beach, we've seen them having cocktails, we've seen them having cuddles. We've seen them holding hands. Um, they obviously don't believe any of it, right? So, uh, but they're expecting us to believe it. They're still selling it. They're still uh, engaging in, in, in publicity and propaganda to, to tell us that this is a real threat. And it's quite clear that they don't believe a word of it. They're lying to us. Well, you've introduced the word there, which is propaganda. So thank you for that, David. Let's uh, just have a look at what other reports were going on around this uh, charade. So it took The Guardian, of course, to come in with this headline, environmental campaigners stage festival type protests at G7. Well, since nobody could get near the G7 and it was all heavily controlled, um, that was probably the only thing that could happen. But let's see what The Guardian's talking about. Now, this is one of their epic pictures. 
uh, and this is surf surfers against sewage were instrumental in highlighting the appalling state of Cornwall's sewage polluted waters. And despite Southwest Waters claim that Cornwall's sewage system is still a shameful health risk, not a mention at G7. Mm. Well, of course, the Guardian didn't say that at all. The UK column is saying that. So basically, the uh, Guardian promoting surfers against sewage without putting any detail as to why surfers against sewage came into existence. You couldn't go into the sea without swimming amongst sewage uh, from southwest water. And that situation has still not been rectified, as many people in Cornwall can vouch. But uh, the Guardian didn't want to mention that. So we'll just uh, label this as a real protest against sewage uh, pollution. Let's go on to the next one. This is uh, Oxfam, which of course the Guardian put, picked out. Nearby, Oxfam campaigners posted G7 leaders on Swampool Beach. The charity has called on G7 leaders to commit to cutting emissions further and faster and to provide more financial help to the most vulnerable countries, uh, to help the most vulnerable countries respond to the impacts of climate change. So this is Oxfam simply putting out the political agenda. So we're going to label this one a fake protest. And uh, all, of, all we're doing is promoting the fake political agenda of climate change. In fairness to The Guardian, they did say stage in the uh, in the headlines. So these were all staged. <laughs> these were all staged, Mike. And of course, you can see the money that's gone into these campaigns. So Oxfam, you know, burning up people's donations with this sort of political activism. But it gets worse. Uh, the Guardian went on to say about 50 members of the group Animal Rebels occupied a McDonald's in Falmouth calling on the fast food giant to kickstart the transition to a plant-based food system. Um, so I think we're going to call that one a fake protest. And uh, what are they doing? Well, it's the fake political agenda of climate change, but using the very emotive cover of animal protection and animal rights. So that one's definitely a fake protest. And then it brings us on to our favorite, uh, which is uh, animal, uh, sorry, Extinction Rebellion. But how did we get there? Well, we followed through the 50 animal rebels. We had a look at their Twitter uh, page and there they are talking about being in McDonald's. But when you look at the banner headline, let's see whether we can produce it on the screen here. It says, we're a mass volunteer movement using nonviolent civil disobedience to help the transition to a plant-based food system in solidarity with Extinction Rebellion. So really, if you're looking at animal rebellion, you're into fake protest. And this is an Extinction Rebellion clone. And uh, Extinction Rebellion, well, it really got into the amusing stuff because you had this sort of thing going on. I'm not sure whether you can work this one out, uh, David, but this is a protest against banking. And so here are the I think there's a lady with a beard there and other ladies that have come in to uh, clean one of the banks. Uh, this is actually a fake protest. Let's have a look at it in a bit more detail with another clip from Extinction Rebellion. And you can see they're outside HSBC Bank and they're saying, well, the banks are not doing anything to really promote the green agenda. And so Extinction Rebellion's giving them a good wash down. But of course, Mike, we know absolutely that the banks are fully at the lead of promoting the uh, green agenda. So this couldn't really be more fake. Indeed. Could it? 
I don't think so. No, no, absolutely. And uh, on extinction goes because here they are protesting at the fossil fuel companies because they're not doing enough for climate change. So this is more of a fake protest uh, against the oil industry. And then we came into this one, uh, which is um, very interesting indeed. These figures, I'm going to say this is a fake protest because this is Extinction Rebellion's Red Brigade chums. Uh, who were on the beach to protest about what's happening. Essentially, these are actors. Um, they're created, they were created by the Bristol Street Performance Group, the Invisible Circus. They're draped in red material with their faces painted white in order to portray living statues. The group often mime in slow motion or create a series of tableau during Extinction Rebellion demonstrations. And according, the, according to those taking part, the Red Brigade symbolizes the common blood we share with all species that unifies us and makes us one. Now, this is part of the Metro report, but David, isn't a white face normally a sign of death? Or is that just my imagination? Yes, and, yes, and, and the, whole, the, the whole thing, which is, um, which is creepy and weird and, um, and obviously religious, Right, because this this is this is not a political movement, um, really. This is a religious movement. This is this is the new faith they're trying to to push forward, and here's an example of the new priesthood. Uh, so that's, that's that's what they're suggesting. That's a very good way of putting it. The priesthood. The brigade went on to to say in the article, uh, the Metro article, we are unity and we empathise with our surroundings. We are forgiving. We are sympathetic and humble, compassionate and understanding. Uh, we divert, distract, delight, and inspire the people who watch us. And, uh, of course, you can also see them uh, performing in other cities here. This is Germany. And I looked at this picture and I thought to myself, is this taking us back towards something a bit more like this, where we had a lot of red, uh, red and white and black flags? Well, maybe, maybe not. But let's get into what The Guardian uh, ultimately took our readers to. Uh, they had this throwaway line. There was frustration from the protesters that they were so far away, more than a mile from Carbis Bay, but, quote, a ring of steel meant they could not get nearer. And then this lady got a mention, a professor, Claire Saunders, an expert in environmental protests from the University of Exeter. Uh, she said that protests organised by networks and organisations so far have been friendly and open to all. There's a real community festival type atmosphere. So this was all good news. But who was this lady? Uh, well, if you go to Exeter University and have a look at her, she's a researcher in social movements, protests and environmental politics. Uh, she's been working in a pan-European study of protest on a range of issues. This is all sort of information, Mike, that would be extraordinarily in interesting and valuable to the government that might want to close down protests. And if you have a look at her model, modules, they're fascinating. Participating in politics, the research toolkit for politics and in international relations, green politics in theory of practice, politics of protest and environmental knowledge controversies. And then if you go and have a look, she's got some pretty impressive funding. Here's 435,000. Now, admittedly, this is with other people. Uh, we've got one here called Polled. Pole part. I wonder whether that was going to be pole dark, which would have brought it in line with Cornwall. 
Um, how citizens influence politics and why team lead for the UK case. Uh, a mere €244,000 there. And this is a cross-national European Research Council advance grant uh, with a total of £2.5 And on go all of these research. And this is all funded. So, David, I'm going to say just very quickly, this lady is fully in bed. I'm still rolling these through on the screen. Uh, with central government European funded projects to track people who are protesting. I get an uneasy feeling. Well, we get, we get this the whole time, that um, all the social change movements, which are allegedly grassroots, are all state-funded. And we have state-funded activists who are given a salary and a full-time position and a surprising amount of influence over such things as education policy and the training of teachers. And they're in there as change agents. I think we're looking at a change agent there. A change agent. I think this would be correct. So if you want to have a look at more detail, please go and research yourself. Here's Paul Part, a bit about how citizens try try and influence politics. They're not successful because research helps us crush it. Uh, funding awarded is a mere 174,285. So that's pure political funding. That's coming out of the uh, EU, ultimately. Uh, this is the lady herself. So if you want to ask her about what she's doing and why she isn't reporting on proper activism in the country, uh, you can get in touch with her there by that email address or that telephone number. So we're just going to say for The Guardian that the whole report about environmental campaigners was clearly fake news. Um, so where was there any Guardian reporting about the real protest about G7? Well, the answer to that was uh, stunning silence, Mike. So no mainstream press reporting against anybody with real concerns against G7. Uh, now, David, we began the programme with uh, lockdown and announcements of lockdown. Uh, we Then we moved on to climate issues. And, uh, well, let's combine the two because uh, apparently we need to be wondering how we avoid a climate lockdown in the not-too-distant future. Yes, uh, this, this is an article reproduced here in the, the W. BCSD, which is the World Business Council for Sustainable, Sustainable Development, and that really rolls off the tongue. Um, picking up an article by someone, we'll get to her in a moment, um, a Professor um, Mariana uh, Masakuto, who, who has uh, appeared before in the UK column news, some of her writing. And she's writing here, under a climate lockdown, governments would limit private vehicle use, ban the consumption of red meat, impose extreme energy saving measures while fossil fuel companies would have to stop drilling to avoid such a scenario we must overhaul our economic structures and do capitalism differently i point out that the differently is called fascism and we'll get there just in a moment uh, she continues many think the climate crisis is distinct from a health is as distinct from the health and economic crises caused by the pandemic but the three crises and the solutions are interconnected she writes so she says, COVID-19 is a consequence of environmental degradation. That's just loopy. We'll just pass over that one. Um, these shortcomings reflect distorted values underlying our priorities. So it's our distorted values that have caused COVID and, and the climate uh, crisis and the economic crisis. So our values have to be undistorted, Brian. Uh, our values need to be corrected. 
Um, so she gives an example. For example, we demand the most from essential workers, including nurses, supermarket workers, and delivery drivers, while paying them the least. Without fundamental change, economic, uh, uh, without fundamental change, climate change will worsen such problems. She says, without any reason behind it. Uh, climate change is also a public health crisis. Global warming will cause drinking water to degrade, enable pollution-linked respiratory diseases to thrive. According to some projections, according to some projections, right? According to the, um, according to um, mathematical models with no credibility, 3.5 million people globally will live in unbearable heat by 2070. I mean, just nonsense. Uh, that's billion, by um, the way. Yeah, sorry, billion. Yeah, sorry. Um, and uh, she concludes, the window for launching a climate revolution and achieving an inclusive recovery from COVID-19 in the process is rapidly closing. We need to move quickly if we want to transform the future of work, transit and energy use and make the concept of a green good life a reality for generations to come. One way or another, radical change is inevitable. Our task is to ensure that we achieve the change we want whilst we still have the choice. That sounds a bit like a threat. Uh, so this is Professor Mariana uh, Masakuto, who's in the faculty of the Built Environment Institution for in Innovation and Public Purpose of uh, University College London. And um, we've had her on the programme before because she comes at this with a, a new economics um, I, uh, mindset, which is the same as the old economics. It's the same old ideas of, as progressivism and the fascist era. It's been uh, around for around 150 years and we're still running the same scenario. And the scenario goes as follows. Um, you give up your liberty. Uh, everything is run by the state. The state will manage it. You do what you're told and everything will be fine. That's the idea. And of course, the irony is it doesn't work. People, people do what they're told and it gets worse. And the state needs more and more intervention and it gets worse. And then the state, state needs wars to steal resources from other people, and it gets worse. What she's actually highlighting here is, is a descent into a pit of conflict and the degradation of, of human existence. And she thinks, I'm sure genuinely, that she's, she's speaking about um, the, the way to a utopia on Earth. She is unfortunately very wrong. Uh, or very reframed, I think we could say, but uh, you've given the contact details. So hopefully um, members of our audience and uh, viewers and listeners uh, can get in touch with her and ask her some questions. Um, now, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned on the programme that uh, Eric Clapton had written a, a letter about uh, which highlighted an adverse reaction that he had uh, experienced due to COVID-19 vaccines. Um, Oracle Films has now interviewed him and that is available. We'll show you the details in a second, how to watch uh, the full uh, interview. But I just want to show uh, a little excerpt from it. Um, so let's have a listen to what Eric Clapton had to say. I'm Eric Clapton, musician. When it came to the beginning of this year, and the Barrington guys were talking about the vaccine as being the, the deal breaker, being on, I thought, okay, and I went and had the jab. Within several hours, I was shaking like a leaf. And uh, I went to bed early and I couldn't get warm. And I did, and I thought, I'm running, am I running a fever? I was boiling hot and sweating and then I was cold. I was out for the count for about a week. I then started to find out more. And it was about that time that I ran into somebody and he told me about a, a channel where I could find uh, lots of information and a lot of support. 
And so I, I logged on to that. There's a chap called Robin Minotti who runs a channel and it's for anybody that's concerned or is looking from in my case looking for support for me i'd felt so alone up until that point i really couldn't talk to my family and my kids my teenagers were it seemed like they'd been brainwashed and i could feel that everywhere i could feel alienation because i held a different view so i was trying to uh, keep my mouth shut but i did i was following the channel avidly and bit by bit I realized that I I probably shouldn't have had the first jab but then I was offered the second and I thought well what's the point in you know stopping now so I went and had the second and that and then it got really bad when you know that nothing will work there's no medication you can take that will will help um, is very very frightening and the worst thing is you don't know when it's gonna uh, wear off or when it's going to go away. So that that was what frightened me the most, medically, health-wise. I mean, to, to touch the guitar, to play the guitar, is not fun, and it's something I do, you know, then I, when I put it down, it's there until I go to bed, and I take sleeping pills because I can't sleep because of the pain, and that's not, it's not a good way to live, but, um, and it's not all due to the vaccine, but the vaccine, took my immune system and just shook it around again. And that's still going on, so. So uh, that, that's quite a lot more to watch on that. If anybody would like to see the full uh, video, it's on brand YouTube uh, on uh, the Oracle Films uh, channel. Uh, it is worth watching. Um, so we encourage everybody to do that. And tragic that that's happened, but um, now he's starting to think. And of course, this is the problem for many people. They've been lured into having the vaccine. And then if there's a problem, what do they do then? Because they're isolated. Uh, we've, we've got a little film clip here, which was uh, sent through to us, taking it at face value by the conversation. I can tell the situation is real. This is a group of people who were filming outside a vaccination centre and uh, as we listen to this clip, it'll emerge that uh, uh, basically um, somebody became ill uh, after having the vaccine. And that was one of three that had been reported or to those individuals at that centre. Let's have a look. Uh, the ambulance is on the way for the gentleman now. We, we uh, caught word somebody came over uh, to the centre and spoke to one of the officers. So we ran over. Uh, to this gentleman because he was holding his head in pain. He said he was drowsy and he had pins and needles in his face, which is crazy. Like... Doctor, doctor, ambulance is in. Okay, so, and what was, actually, uh, what was actually said in the clip was that there had been two cases that the, the man filming knew about. So two cases have come out of that centre. It was Pfizer jab that Pfizer jab that people were receiving and that they believed there was another individual. So there, there was a doctor and medics present uh, for the man who was lying on the park bench. The police were there and in the discussion between the people there watching and uh, filming and the police, it was perfectly evident that this was not uncommon, that people were coming out of this centre and then having problems. Uh, but that man initially started out feeling unwell, then he'd got pins and needles, and then he, he ended up basically uh, collapsing back on the bench in the park. So very serious things.
Um, right, this uh, this paper is doing this scientific paper is doing the rounds uh, at the moment, and so I thought we should mention it. It's uh, entitled "First Case of Postmortem Study in a Patient Vaccinated Against SARS-CoV-2," um, and they say that they're reporting on a patient with a single dose of vaccine against SARS-CoV-2. Uh, it's a previously symptomless uh, 86-year-old man who received the first dose. Uh, he died four weeks later from acute renal and respiratory failure. Uh, they say he developed uh, the relevant antibody levels, uh, but died four weeks later, as I said. Um, but they also say that uh, by using post-mortem molecular mapping, they find that viral RNA was uh, 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 exhibited in each, uh, in almost all organs examined. Um, however, they didn't observe any characteristic morphological features of COVID-19. So although he had a PCR test and the PCR test came back positive, he had apparently no symptoms of COVID-19. But anyway, he died uh, four weeks after receiving the vaccination. Uh, they therefore conclude that uh, from their measurements and so on, that uh, immunogenicity uh, might be elicited. In other words, there might be an immune response uh, having had the vaccine. Uh, but what they discovered was that sterile, immuni sterile immunity was not established. So this seems to reinforce uh, or underpin uh, the idea that uh, if you receive these vaccines, that they are not going to prevent you uh, getting ill, or, and they're certainly not going to prevent you spreading uh, anything. Um, and uh, they go on to say that although he didn't present with any COVID-19 specific symptoms, he did test positive. So you know, clearly he didn't die of COVID-19. He died of something else. He was 82 years old. But the question is whether the vaccines are worth the paper that they're, you know, the paper that they're written on, because if they're if they're uh, not providing uh, sterile immunity, then they're not uh, they're not actually going to provide any benefit uh, or any possibility of us seeing uh, lockdowns removed in the future or social yeah, distancing. It's a scam, Mike. It's known as a scam. I think that's probably a fair statement. So, uh, and with that in mind, David, uh, many people talking about this last week, uh, the fact that uh, your own, uh, as in Scotland's best COVID uh, uh, advisor, Debbie Sridhar, was speaking to the BBC's Newsround programme. And for those outside the UK that don't know what Newsround is, uh, it is a special news program for the younger generation, so children, basically. And, uh, well, she had quite a bit to say. She did, and she was magnificent. She spoke with great condescension to the children in a very reassuring tone. Um, but there was a problem. Uh, we see here, someone sent me this. Thank you very much for the person who sent this in, because they got a screenshot of it before it changed. Um, the question asked by uh, a child called Rocky... Is the vaccine 100% safe for children? Good question, Rocky. Answer. So far, trials have shown the vaccine is 100% safe for children, said Debbie. Uh, no. That one had to, be, had to be edited out by the BBC. If you go, they've still got the video up. Um, you'll find that that question and answer have mysteriously disappeared. But what we do have is a correction. The correction, this article has been amended to remove a reference by a contributor, we're not saying which one, because we don't want to embarrass the Scottish government, because we've probably done a risk assessment about our communications. Um, a reference by a contributor that the Pfizer vaccine is 100% safe. The UK Medicines Healthcare Products Regulatory Industry Agency said, quote, we've carefully reviewed clinical trial data 
aged children aged 12 to 15, and have concluded that the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine is safe and effective for the age group, and that the benefits of this vaccine outweigh any risks. So there are risks, and Debbie was wrong to say there weren't. They continue, quote, we have uh, uh, in place a comprehensive safety surveillance strategy for monitoring the safety of all UK approved COVID-19 vaccines, and this surveillance will include 12 to 15 year age group, quote, no extension to an authorisation will be approved unless expected standards of safety, quality and effectiveness have been met. It will be now for the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation to advise whether the age group will be vaccinated as part of the deployment programme. So quite a lot in there. It's a relative risk. They're saying that it's relative to the risk of COVID, which as far as I was aware for this age group was basically zero, that the um, the risk of the vaccine, which which does exist, is, is, is less. Um, and uh, there have been, uh, there's an ongoing programme to monitor the safety. So that obviously means that that programme is necessary because we're still in stage three trials after all. Yeah, David, uh, I mean, that statement from the MHRA is the statement that, that we have now read that statement out three or four times in this programme in various contexts. That is the statement that the MHRA made. So basically what the BBC has done there is that they've made a one-line statement that there's of a correction, and then they've just regurgitated uh, the same uh, MHRA statement, which was actually June Rain's words uh, once again. So they haven't offered any explanation or any apology for the fact that uh, they published something which is misleading. Uh, they have uh, just pushed out the same words once again. I just want to say, Mike, I think it's worse than misleading because they were targeting children. And how many of the children are now going to be aware that there is a correction? And even if they become aware there's a correction, how many of those children could understand what that correction was actually saying? So this is BBC propaganda that was deliberately telling children information which was untrue and yet the BBC has still not properly been brought to account over it. I don't think this is misleading. This is dangerous propaganda aimed at children. Uh, OK, well, let's uh, move on to this then. Uh, speaking of children, this is the Local Government Association, and they have now published a section encouraging vaccine uptake amongst younger people. So let's just have a look at what they say here. Encouraging vaccine uptake uh, is likely to become more challenging as we move through vaccination cohorts especially when reaching the lowest priority, younger generations. Younger generations are more likely to be vaccine hesitant, uh, partly because they perceive themselves to be at lower risk of developing a severe form of COVID-19. So let's uh, have a look at what this entire uh, page is all about. It's about behavioral insights because the behavioral insights are telling them how they need to approach this problem. So first of all, they're gonna highlight the pro-social benefits of vaccination so the first behavioural insight is that emphasising the pro-social benefits of vaccination is particularly effective amongst young people. Pro-social benefits include achieving herd immunity, which we already have admissions aren't, that isn't going to happen because these are leaky vaccines and therefore you're not going to get herd immunity from them. Uh, protecting others, uh, especially those in, uh, that are vulnerable and, uh, and cannot get vaccinated. Uh, combined, both informational and emotional content can be effective. So this is openly talking about a psychological operation being played on the children. Uh, potential application, focus on pro-social benefits of vaccination and communications tailored at young people, and so on. The next behavioral insight then, 
highlighting social norms about vaccination. So highlighting that there are growing intentions to get vaccinated, that most people are getting vaccinated and that they approve doing so, uh, can effectively encourage vaccine take up. Since young people tend to be more susceptible to peer influence, it's likely that social norms could be particularly effective when targeting this group. So they're targeting a group here. Uh, potential application emphasize social norms in communications targeted towards young people, make vaccination visible to other young people by setting up vaccination centers in university campuses or schools, uh, launch an I will get vaccinated pledge on social media. And so it goes on. The next one, uh, highlight the long-term health consequences of COVID-19. Uh, don't highlight any long-term health consequences of COVID-19 vaccines, because of course those aren't known yet, but that's okay. Uh, people are more likely to get vaccinated if they believe COVID-19 is serious and if they believe they are at risk of contracting it. Uh, so since young people are less at risk of developing a lethal form of COVID-19, highlighting the potential long-term consequences of the illness is, seems to be the way forward. But this is raw applied behavioural psychology to achieve a political objective, totally disregarding what science says about what's happening. Yes, use trustworthy and relatable messages. So we're back to trust again. People are influenced by who del delivers the message. Soft messengers, inverted commas, are figures that are influential because they're perceived as f similar, relatable and trustworthy. So use messengers that young people relate to uh, to deliver vaccine messages. Uh, these, for example, can be social media influencers that are in their age group. Uh, and then we've got uh, make vaccination as easy as possible. So the behavioral insight here is that reducing physical or logistical barriers to vaccination can encourage, can encourage take up. Uh, so set up vaccination centers in, local, in locations that are convenient to young people near schools, universities have already mentioned that. And then finally, we've got uh, the latest behavioral, the last behavioral insight here, motivate vaccination through financial incentives. Well, they're going to run lotteries. Well, this has been done in other places, but their behavioral insight that they list is financial incentives can motivate vaccination, especially for people that perceive the risks of infection as low, such as young people. Financial rewards are considered more acceptable if delivered as vouchers over cash, uh, smaller values over large, and certain rewards uh, as opposed to lotteries. So maybe they're not going to use lotteries. However, be cautious when offering financial incentives as they can undermine people's intrinsic motivation to get vaccinated and could be perceived as a confirmation that vaccination is risky or undesirable. Uh, so the potential application would be to invite people to participate in a vaccine take-up support program, offering a small reward for receiving both vaccine doses. So David, uh, Brian's very clear about uh, his position on this. What do you, th what do you think? It's quite remarkable. It's, it's very reminiscent. It's, there's a book on the eugenics movement in America called War Against the Weak. Uh, eugenics in America's campaign to create a master race, written by a chap called Edwin Black. Um, it goes through the campaign they had to encourage the uptake of the eugenics program. It's almost identical. It was getting trusted sources to reassure the populace um, to encourage uh, participation, to develop uh, social um, um, norms around, around the new ideas. It's exactly the same. Um, it hasn't changed really at all since the 1920s and 30s. However much Spy B might think they're very advanced in their, in their ideas, it's, been all, it's all been done before. And of course, what's the, what's the, the legal and lawful requirement here? There's meant to be 
consent. There's meant to be express, informed, individual, voluntary consent. Bribing people undermines that. It's unlawful. They can't do that. They'll do it anyway, but it's unlawful. Threatening people, having campaigns to frighten them into getting vaccinated, it's unlawful. It undermines consent. Uh, David, the other thing I just mentioned is they're bringing in a collective voice, isn't it? This is putting in a mindset into, into people's heads that they should all think and do the same, and they're using fear to ramp it up. So the local government association might producing this policy if we go back 20 years, of course, it was our old friends of the political charity Common Purpose, alongside another organisation called IDEA, that were taking control of, of local councils, local government. And of course, the local government association is the means by which you create the collective voice mm. of local government. So this, this is very deep, dark stuff going on here. Um, okay, so Patrick uh, on Friday mentioned uh, his surveys uh, for with respect to vaccine passports. So let's just have a look at some of the results uh, because the results are now in. Um, so here's the first one: Will you fly with Ryanair as the company? If, sorry, if the company uh, requires you to show a vaccine passport, and the results: six point four percent yes, ninety three point six percent no. I mean, we've got to offer the caveat uh, straight away here, of course, that uh, Patrick's. Uh, Twitter followers and and likely people that his tweets are coming in contact are uh, probably more likely to vote no. But nonetheless, that is a very uh, staggering uh, statistic. Um, let's have a look at the equivalent for EasyJet. Uh, this time it was 5.8% saying yes and 94.2% saying no. That's with 6,000 votes. Uh, KLM, uh, it was 5.9% yes and 94.1% no. 4,000 votes in that case. Uh, then we have uh, British Airways, 6% saying yes, 94% uh, saying no, with 4,500 votes in that case. And then finally here we've got uh, Qantas, uh, and that was 4.7% saying yes, and 95.3% saying no, and again with 4,000 votes plus. Um, so this is not a good sign for the airlines, if this is in any way representative of what people think. Um, but uh, let's have a look at what happened next because uh, uh, Qantas, uh, oh, sorry, we, let's uh, have a look at uh, Virgin Atlantic, 5,165 votes in this case, 4.8% yes, 95.2% uh, no. Um, and uh, so in this case, uh, Virgin Atlantic actually replied um, and they said, uh, hi, Patrick, we are trialing digital health solutions such as the uh, IATA Travel Pass. Uh, to make it easier for customers to collect, store, and verify their COVID-19 credentials, e.g. a negative test. Uh, but these trials are entirely voluntary. Uh, that was the first of two. They went on to say all customers can continue to make journeys by following the relevant requirements in place for their origin slash destination countries. And it is governments that set these rules. Hope to see you on board. Well, first of all, uh, the IATA, just to remind everybody, is the International Air Transport Association, this global trade association for airlines, as they say. Um, so they are uh, very much pushing the idea of uh, uh, passports uh, for um, uh, uh, COVID passports, I should say. And uh, let's just have a look at uh, this from commonpass.org um, on Twitter saying, uh, Qantas CEO Alan Joyce says that COVID vaccines are a necessary, are ne are necessity, sorry, for international air travel. 
uh, and commonpass.org saying, make no mistake, we'll fight against these proposals now and throughout 2021. Airlines or governments don't get the final word on our freedom. We do. Um, well, that is uh, true. But uh, uh, David, just very briefly, um, if, as I say, those results are even slightly representative of how people feel, this is not good news for the airlines because clearly they're under a lot of pressure to implement these things. They will be, and uh, the, the, the governments will, will keep that pressure rising. And of course, the airlines are now, um, they must be quite close to collapse. I mean, the, the, this has been known for a long time. Um, the, the, the costs that they carry, the fixed costs that they carry will be eating into, into their capital and the pressure will, will mount ever higher. Uh, but ultimately, if the people say no, then it's no. And uh, if we do act together in that way, uh, there's not really very much the governments can do other than give in. Um, I, they'll come back again and try later, but they'll have to give in in the short term. Uh, the key to all of these things is um, resist. Don't give in. Uh, indeed. Now, uh, I'd intended to cover this on uh, Friday's programme. Somehow it got missed. Um, this is from Reuters, skull and crossbones given to the unvaccinated in rural India. And uh, again, thank you to uh, people that sent this through to me. So this is saying police in rural India have made some citizens who have not been vaccinated against the coronavirus wear signs with a skull and crossbones, uh, the universal symbol for danger, uh, stoking uh, anger in a country where shots are in short supply. Um, so it goes on to talk a little bit more about this, but I th we have a little bit of video here that I just want people to see. So that it's very short, just so that you get an impression of what is actually uh, being done. And those who have not been vaccinated were handed posters with skull marks and the message, They were also asked to read the message aloud and take an oath promising to get vaccinated within two days. So that's, uh, that's, that's where that went. They were stopped. They were made to wear uh, the skull and crossbones on their chests. And uh, they were then asked to make, a, I, I would say probably promises is more appropriate than oath, but nonetheless, uh, to get, be vaccinated within two days. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's pretty offensive, but it takes, I think it takes me back to the Chinese revolution where children are being turned against their parents and criminals had banners hung around their necks and they were admitting their sins as they were passed through the you know towns on the back of lorries this is vicious stuff this is heading towards pol pot uh, very briefly david yes and we've had a lot of criticism of the people who are wearing yellow stars um, to mock the restrictions or to highlight the nature of the restrictions that the coronavirus regulations are bringing in and to highlight the similarity between the early days of the Nazi rule in Germany and what we're now having to live under. And uh, the, the response is that this is insensitive to, to Jewish people and is minimising the nature of the Holocaust. I think not. What we're seeing there is, is the sort of uh, singling out of people uh, the humiliation of people, the stigmatisation of people that was the start of the attack on the Jewish community in Germany. Um, and the, the similarities are real. Uh, indeed. Uh, and certainly uh, a number of people, uh, when they heard what Tony Blair had to say, we covered this on last Monday's programme, uh, what Tony Blair had to say on the Andrew Marr 
program were drawing uh, very close parallels to what was going on uh, in the 1930s, for example. But uh, let's move to uh, Scotland and some uh, statistics, David. Yeah, just a little uh, statistical overview here we see from the Press and Journal uh, a, a series of stats. The case, uh, this is a, by local authority in Scotland. And I, I like the graphics here because there's some very scary red colours. Oh, there's 142 cases in Glasgow City and it's all very, very frightening. Until you look across at the green column, which is the number of deaths with COVID, which is, of course, zero. You think, well, that's a bit odd. So why all the, the scary colour schemes um, in, in the graphic is that to make us afraid? Um, the, next, the next graphic here is the daily new cases in Scotland. And while, look, we have here um, uh, quite, quite an ascent. This is the third wave, is it not, of cases, another case-demic coming in. Um, and um, the, the, the seven-day average here is, 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 is picking up quite, quite noticeably. Um, until you go, that is, uh, to the, the deaths, and that shows quite a different picture. You see the original spike that happened just after the lockdown was introduced back in 2020. You see the uh, the increase in the autumn, um, normal seasonal flu time of year, uh, started to decrease and then a, a, a big spike when the COVID vaccine was launched. And then as, um, as we get into summer, um, as it always does, these things drop away to virtually nothing. And virtually nothing is what we've got. But the, the narrative is that it's very worrying and that there's another wave coming and that we must be afraid. And this is being repeated ad nauseam uh, in the Scottish press by the Scottish government uh, using £44,000 per day to get the message across. Uh, good stuff. Uh, but uh, the watchdog's remit, I'm not sure you can tell us which watchdog we're talking about. Oh, Public Health Scotland, sorry, is to shield uh, SNP ministers from what criticism? Right. Now, this is very interesting because we've talked a lot about the lack of independence in independent uh, authorities and independent bodies and independent reviews and independent reports. We mentioned this frequently on the UK column, but now we have evidence that this is exactly correct. So, yes, this is Public Health Scotland. Um, they had to report on the mass discharge of patients into care homes. Um, but it transpires that uh, they have to score the research to determine which papers challenge or criticise Scottish government policies. They have to do a risk assessment. So Jean Freeman, uh, you see her here, former health secretary, uh, she said she wanted an independent analysis when she commissioned Public Health Scotland to investigate whether transferring hundreds of untested patients into care homes in March last year caused outbreaks of COVID-19. Um, that's always obviously just part of the problem, but the, the Times goes on here. Um, the document uncovered by the Times using freedom of information laws shows that Public Health Scotland, which was created a year ago, has an agreed communication framework with the Holyrood government and COSLA, the, the local authorities organisation. This instructs Public Health Scotland to manage risk when communicating with the media and public. It adds, quote, risk management in relation to communications will primarily relate to reducing the potential impact of the risk on the reputation and credibility of the organisations, which may also impact the wider NHS and local authorities. So the Public Health Scotland have to manage risk to reduce the impact on the reputation of the Scottish government. 
that's written into their agreements. That is not conspiracy theory, that is their standard operating procedure. Um, the Times goes on, the document sets out a system for scoring Public Health Scotland communications to determine risk. Rankings very high or severe, with a score of four to eight, communications are those that would cause sustain the widespread criticism of the Scottish Government. Ministers being pressed to make a statement in Parliament. To generate the score, the framework sets out questions which Public Health Scotland should ask about the material at places in the public domain, including, quote, does it challenge or could it be interpreted as a critique of Scottish Government position or policy? So that is the question they ask themselves before they release scientific data about the health of the nation. Um, so the Times continues here. Um, uh, the, the Public Health Scotland put out a report last year. Nicola Sturgeon quoted a passage that said, quote, there is no statistical evidence that hospital discharges of any kind were associated with care home outbreaks. The Office of National Statistics, uh, so the Office for Statistics Regulation later dismissed the First Minister's comments and said that the discharges were consistent with a causal relationship. So the First Minister lied, but she lied using the quote from the so-called independent Public Health Scotland report, and they correlate their um, transmission of information to suit the reputation of the Scottish Government. Uh, Times uh, concludes here, Public Health Scotland uh, stated that, the, that they discharge the duties with integrity and are committed to work that is both open and transparent. <laughs> a risk assessment for all publications is undertaken to inform supporting communications and for the awareness of our sponsors, the Scottish Government and Causal. It does not change the substance, content or independence of those uh, producing publications. The Scottish Government declined to comment. But that's because they couldn't comment because it's so obvious what's actually taking place, David. Now, just to dip into a little deeper into Public Health Scotland, they're quite a new organisation, but just so you know what they are, uh, Public Health Scotland is Scotland's lead national agency for improving and protecting the health and well-being, not defined by the way still, of all Scotland's people. So that's what they are. It's a lead agency for, for improving the health and protecting the the health and well-being of all Scotland's people. So that's who they are. Um, that uh, They also say here um, uh, that our vision is of a Scotland where everybody thrives, our focus on, is on increasing healthy life expectancy, reducing premature mortality. To do this, we use data, intelligence, and a place-based approach. I wondered what a place-based approach might mean. Do you have any ideas, gentlemen? <laughs> no, I don't. I'm, I'm laughing at this stage. Well, I delved further into the Public Health Scotland uh, and found that, it, that the example they gave was a 20-minute neighbourhood. I didn't know what a 20-minute neighbourhood it was, uh, but there was a link and I followed it through and it took me to the Town and Country Planning Association. The 20-minute neighbourhood or the 15-minute city has grown with interest around the world, especially since COVID-19. Um, another way of describing it is a complete, compact and connected neighbourhood where people can meet their everyday needs within a short walk or cycle. The idea of a 20-minute neighbourhood uh, presents multiple benefits, including both, uh, uh, boosting local economies, improving people's health and well-being, increasing social connections and community, and tackling climate change. Oh, well, wouldn't you know it. COVID-19, economic benefits and climate change all tied up in this idea 
of the 20 minute neighborhood. So 20 minutes is all the, the radius you'll be allowed to move. You know, none of these uh, motor cars and freedom and, and foreign travel. No, we don't want any of that. You'll have 20 minutes radius. Um, just very briefly, the, the Town and Country Planning Association, uh, their values are built on a powerful history of utopian and progressive ideas which shaped the Garden City movement. So they're from the fascist progressive era as well, and they're looking for a utopian solution. So, uh, And it's, it is very interesting that time and time again we see the planning law being used to promote social change. We see it uh, cropping up in the 5G rollout quite heavily. Planning law is an instrument that the government can use with, with relatively hands-off, they don't really carry the blame, but it's able to change society in ways which are very fundamental. And nipping back to Public Health Scotland here, the Chief Executive, Angela Leach, uh, 25 years experience of working in the local authority, started a career in human resource management and chaired the local authority chief executives in Scotland. So she's been a chief exec of various Scottish local authorities and she's also worked in the area of childcare and children's mental health. Not a lot of direct medical knowledge for someone who's the lead agency for improving Scotland's health. A strange choice, I thought. Um, so we now come to, um, and, and many thanks to the UK column researcher that found this. This is a UK government uh, document, uh, information for the UK recipients on COVID-19 vaccine AstraZeneca. So this is the official leaflet on the safety and efficacy and all the information that people in the UK need to know about the AstraZeneca jab. And it reads, extremely rare cases of blood clots with low levels of platelets have been observed following vaccination with COVID-19 vaccine AstraZeneca. The majority of these cases occurred within the first 14 days following vaccination, but some have been reported after this period. Some cases were life-threatening or had fatal outcomes. It is important to remember that the benefits of vaccination to give protection against COVID-19 still outweigh any potential risks. So that's the government telling you that the vaccine kills people. Yes, we understand that. So I thought, well, that's interesting because they're saying it kills people, but the justification is the risk of COVID is still greater. Now, I find this a very interesting statistical assessment that has to be done here. There's a risk assessment required here. So I wrote uh, to, amongst other groups, Public Health Scotland, and said, since it's now acknowledged in the package leaflet that the COVID vaccination programme can in some cases result in the death of the patient, I quoted that leaflet again, the justification for continued use of the AstraZeneca vaccine is based on an objective statistical quantitative risk assessment. And I quoted again them saying that the vaccination benefits outweigh the risks. Therefore, please provide full calculations, evidence basis and supporting documentation that demonstrates the relative risk of COVID-19 for various sections of the population before and after vaccination and compares those risks to the risks from the vaccination programme. So I sent this to the Premier lead um, agency looking after public health in Scotland, who are obviously fighting the COVID crisis and are leading Scotland's uh, efforts against COVID. And they said, your inquiry is best directed to Medicines Healthcare Product Reg Regulatory Agency, MHRA. That's it, nothing. Uh, and David, oh. you just got a response from their communication team, which wasn't even signed. So there wasn't even a name. Nobody was prepared to put a name. 
uh, it was just from the communications team. So Public Health Scotland do not know what the risks are. If they did, they oh, would tell you. They do not know. If they, if they did, they would tell us. Now, they, hold, they, they know that the vaccines can kill, because that's now, that's now established in government literature. And their argument is that, the, that, the, that COVID-19 is such a threat that you're still better off with the vaccine. Now, that, since the basic principles first do no harm, that requires an extremely robust um, justification. If you're going to give something, you say it's going to kill some people, we're going, to, we're going to cause deaths here, but the situation is so severe, we have to do this because otherwise there'll be more deaths. That, that decision must surely be backed up by the most rigorous, the most thoroughly reviewed, the most, the most uh, deeply examined um, statistical and scientific analysis, you would think. But they don't have anything. No. Right. Okay. Well, we're rapidly running out of time here. So let's uh, quickly move on. If you like what the uh, column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. Also, please do share our material that you find on the various platforms. Uh, but unfortunately, David, people can no longer share your material on one particular platform. Though my Twitter um, permanent ban which I was long expecting was coming along. It's very strange because my, my, my number of Twitter followers had been increasing very rapidly and had gone up about 1,500 in a month. And then all of a sudden I noticed that it wasn't going up anymore. It just stopped. It was quite clearly some sort of shadow ban. And then I said the wrong thing. I pointed out that the vaccines were still in stage three trials and I pointed out that they were resulting in deaths. And uh, I got a permanent ban. I have appealed it, but I can't say I'm terribly hopeful. Um, and uh, yeah, so unfortunately, no more Albion underscore Rover on, on uh, Twitter. OK, well, we won't dwell on this one, but I couldn't resist this headline from The Times. Gordon Brown fears 50 years of conflict between England and Scotland. So Gordon Brown dragged out uh, back into the public limelight in his bath chair. And what is he keen in ramping up more conflict between um, England and Scotland when we get on pretty well. So I'm just going to say, I think the state is desperate. Uh, we'll get rid of Gordon Brown as soon as possible. Can you take him off the screen, off please? Screen, yes, <laughs> okay, yes, good. And uh, this one from The Telegraph, public fed up with virtue signalling police who should be locking up burglars, says police chief. So this is Greater Manchester police chief. And he says that um, uh, officers' traditional impartiality is being put at risk. Well, no, Chief Constable, the impartiality has been wiped out because your force, like many others, has followed a political agenda first set by common purpose whom you paid to train your officers. So uh, I think there needs to be a toughening up of that one. And just wanted to give the uh, Metro another mention here because they had an interesting article on the GB News launch. Andrew Neil vows to give voice to those who feel sidelined. Can you believe Andrew Neil said that? I can't. And expose cancel culture as a threat to free speech. Well, my assessment of, of this is that it's a crude attempt by the state and the mainstream media to try and regain control of the narrative which has now been won by the new media, such as the UK column. Some people call that alternative media. 
and that the GB News is effectively a decoy. That's my instant assessment of what's going on. Uh, well, yesterday I had uh, some communications from a, a journalist that we know. Uh, we aren't going to put his identity on screen, but uh, he uh, said this, my prediction, they will try to be edgy for about three months as GB News is talking about. Then they'll be forced to harmonize with mainstream media on most stories, playing safe and increasingly boring, pretending to be conservative rebels. Uh, Piers Morgan will end up taking it over within 12 months as Andrew Neil is at the end of his rope. So just very briefly, David, uh, any thoughts? Well, time will tell. I mean, the, the, the mainstream media now is, has lost all credibility. I mean, things like the BBC and The Guardian, it's, it's, it's really only laughs now. Uh, people are calling them things like the Vichy media. I quite like that one. Um, Will, will GB News be any better? Well, time will tell, but I, I, I sympathise with that journalist and his assessment. Uh, yes, indeed. Well, look, uh, let's come back to the G7 just briefly uh, and uh, have a look at uh, some video footage. Of course, they... Oh, they're masks. Oh, yes. Well, they, they, that was that was getting off the planes. They're all in masks, yes. Uh, they, they, of course, released a communique. In fact, a whole range of communiques. Uh, usual jargon in there about inclusiveness, transparency, resilience, democracy, rules-based international order, all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, but uh, Brian was uh, asking about the uh, the banks earlier, uh, or talking about the banks earlier with respect to this because they are well and truly behind this. Uh, and uh, so the main message that came out was absolutely on green finance. And of course, we've been talking about this over the last. Uh, little while because they've been making more and more statements in this direction. So the communique says we emphasize the need to green the global financial system so that financial decisions take climate considerations into account. We support moving towards mandatory climate-related financial disclosures based on the task force on climate-related financial disclosures. Uh, we also look forward to the establishment of the task force on nature-related financial disclosures. Uh, this will reinforce government policy to meet our net zero commitments. Uh, we recognize the potential of high integrity carbon markets and carbon pricing to foster cost-effective reductions in emission levels. Uh, we must accelerate the decarbonization of our economies to achieve a net zero global emissions pathway. So they then created uh, a global fan, uh, nature compact, uh, which states that through this compact, we commit to supporting global consensus and to taking bold action for delivery of ambitious outcomes for nature in 2021 at the Convention on Biological Diversity, uh, COP15 in Cunning in the United Nations Framework Convention uh, on Climate Change in, and COP26 in Glasgow in particular. Throughout the next decade, we will each mobilize on a whole of government basis to halt and reverse biodiversity loss with action across four core pillars, transition, investment, conser conservation, and accountability. Uh, and uh, so they seem to have dropped a lot of the sort of great reset terminology that they've been using. Uh, it has clearly gathered too much momentum of its own. Uh, and so they are now uh, talking about uh, the green transition being nature positive is a new phrase, nature positivity. Um, our world must become not only net zero, but also nature positive. Uh, and another uh, chosen phrase that, that they like to use now in their communiques is nature-based solutions, uh, also sustainable and climate-resilient agriculture, which basically means not feeding anybody. But anyway, uh, they're going uh, to encourage all multilateral development banks, international finance institutions and development 
finance institutions to embed nature into their analysis, policy dialogue, and operations. So this is all good stuff. Now, of course, uh, as we watch them here, uh, one person who wasn't there was Donald Trump because he's no longer pr uh, president, but uh, Joe Biden was there. And as a result of Trump being well and truly out of the way, uh, this was the view of Ursula von der Leyen, uh, who's of course president of the EU Commission. And her opinion is that trust is back in the G7 now that Trump is out of the way. Our views, values, and interests are aligned now that Trump is out of the way. The green and digital transition is our priority and above all, uh, our responsibility. So uh, as I say, they had uh, the various communiques. This is the uh, Carbis Bay G7 Summit community communique. Uh, begins with end the pandemic and prepare for the future. It's about reinvigorating economies, securing future prosperity, protecting the planet, strengthening global partnerships, embracing our values. It is just uh, pathetic. Uh, and as we mentioned uh, just uh, a week or so ago, the G7 finance ministers and central bank governors communique also was released about a week ago. Uh, the central bankers and uh, the likes of uh, Rishi Sunak uh, all involved in producing that. And we've seen the outcome. Um, so, however, it's not going all, uh, it's not going well everywhere on the planet for this particular narrative. Uh, here's Switzerland, uh, and this is SRF, uh, the news outlet in Switzerland. Let's just do a quick translation of this. Uh, Switzerland's CO2 law is shipwrecked, is the, uh, the title. Uh, and basically the uh, electorate voted down this new climate uh, law that they were trying to introduce, which is called uh, the CO2 uh, gazettes um, by a 51.5% majority. Um, so the climate uh, change uh, lobby uh, were very unhappy about this. They said it was a black day for climate protection, uh, that it was a pile of broken glass for Swiss climate protection. Um, and this law was going to uh, really see massive increases in taxes, uh, particularly on fuel uh, and other energy. Um, and so uh, unfortunately, the uh, environment minister uh, has had to say that uh, the no to the CO2 law is not a no to climate protection uh, because no is not no. Uh, and uh, however, she said, it's, uh, it will now be difficult to achieve the Paris climate targets. Um, so that is uh, very unfortunate for them. Uh, but David, in the meantime, uh, of course, uh, part and parcel with this is the idea that we uh, don't need to own anything anymore. So let's just have a look at the latest from the World Economic Forum. Well, this is a this is a look back because people will remember this this um, uh, this article became very famous. Uh, you will own nothing and you'll be happy, and there was a bit of video with it. Uh, but I came across recently because the the original from the World Health uh, World Economic Forum is no longer on their website, but Forbes had an article about it from when this was first launched, and you know there's a bit more. Uh, the articles by this this lady Ida. Uh, Auken, Member of Parliament from Denmark, right, so welcome to 2030, I, I, will, I own nothing, have no privacy, and life has never been better. Now, I, I had missed this as part of the, the original bit, but no, there's no privacy. And uh, so she was the author of this, um, uh, this, this paper, um, and uh, it goes, my biggest concern, she, she writes, is all the people who do not live in our city, uh, those we have lost on the way, those who have decided it became too much, all this technology, those who felt absolutely useless when robots and AI took over big parts of their jobs, those who got upset with the political system and turned against it, 
They live different kind of lives outside the city. Some have found uh, formed little self-supplying communities. Others just stayed in the empty and abandoned houses in small 19th century villages. So she's she's painting this in a completely science fiction dystopian way if you're not inside the city where you own nothing and have no privacy. Uh, and it also, it continues, once in a while I get annoyed about the fact that I have no real privacy. Nowhere I can go and not be registered. I know that somewhere everything I do, think and dream of is recorded. I just hope that no one will use it against me. But all in all, it's a good life, she writes. So e even the people pushing this have a, have a strange feeling that it's really leaving them horribly vulnerable to whatever the state wishes to do with the information. David, with the picture of those two ladies buying whatever the product was they were looking at off the shelf, beauty product, presumably, I just got Stepford Wives in my mind. It was just like a scene out of Stepford Wives. Um, well, look, uh, let's uh, move on to this. The NATO summit is taking place today. Joe Biden, of course, is attending. Uh, here's Boris Johnson. Uh, let's have a look at what he had to say as we recover from the global devastation wreaked by the coronavirus uh, pandemic. We need to do so with secure foundations. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about NATO modernizing, NATO modernizing and NATO modernizing. That's really what he wants uh, NATO to do. Um, but of course, the theme of this uh, summit is uh, the usual nonsense from NATO uh, about Russia this and China that. Rules-based uh, rules international order, the other, uh, and uh, of course mentioning cyber threats, climate change, and so on. So now climate change has become uh, a key function of NATO. So let's just to get a feel for this, uh, just briefly listen to uh, Jens Stoltenberg speaking this morning. Uh, and I do apologise in advance for uh, posing this upon everybody. We meet at the pivotal moment for our alliance and uh, today we'll open a new chapter in our transatlantic relationship. Leaders will discuss a wide range of uh, issues, uh, among them uh, Russia, and um, our relationship with Russia is at uh, its lowest uh, point uh, since uh, the end of the Cold War. This is due to Russia's aggressive actions. Uh, I, I'm confident that uh, the NATO leaders will uh, uh, confirm our dual-track uh, uh, approach to Russia, strong defense uh, combined with uh, dialogue. And uh, I'm sure that the NATO leaders will um, welcome the opportunity to consult with uh, President Biden ahead of his uh, meeting with uh, President uh, Putin. We'll also address um, uh, China. There are, of course, opportunities, and we need to engage uh, with uh, China on uh, issues like uh, uh, climate change, uh, arms control. But uh, China's um, military buildup, uh, growing uh, uh, influence, and uh, coercive behavior uh, also poses uh, some uh, challenges to our security. And we need to address them together as an alliance. Um, on this background, uh, NATO leaders will today agree an ambitious forward-looking agenda, the NATO 2030 Agenda. Uh, this is about uh, how to reinforce our collective defense, how to strengthen our resilience and sharpening our technological edge, and for the first time in NATO's history, also make uh, uh, climate and security an important uh, task for uh, our alliance. 
So I don't know what you make of that, David, but uh, what did he say? Strong defense and dialogue. So dialogue, I'm not clear that there's been any dialogue with Russia in years. The NATO-Russia dialogue hasn't met in, I can't remember, it's certainly over a decade. Um, and uh, But it was, it's all about Russian aggression because um, we're not being aggressive in any way, shape or form. No, it's all the Russians' fault. They've, they've put the country too close to our military bases. It's ridiculous. Um, the, I'm, I'm puzzled, though. How is this a new chapter? He, he started off saying, this is a new chapter. It's pivotal, and this is a new chapter. So there's something new. And then we're, we're kind of angry at Russia, and uh, China's a threat, and climate change. How is any of that a new chapter? Uh, it's a new chapter because NATO is paving a new path for itself. It is taking on a much more political role. It's trying to establish itself as uh, a political defense union. Um, and uh, of course, agenda, the NATO Agenda 2030, uh, the NATO 2030, whatever it's called, uh, people need to understand that because you know NATO was all about European defense uh, until now. But now they're absolutely reorienting towards China as well and the South China Sea in particular. So we are attempting, or NATO is attempting to do, uh, to build a, a narrative for China uh, identical to that of Russia, um, because they are going to be the perennial enemy. Um, so anyway, uh, we'll keep an eye on it. And uh, but just uh, just to end this point, uh, you know, listening to the various. Uh, uh, Leaders, so-called leaders. I mean, Boris Johnson, China. I don't think anyone around the table wants to descend into a new Cold War with China. Well, that's clearly untrue because that's exactly what they're doing. Uh, but he he went on to say uh, that uh, it's a it's, China is a gigantic fact in our lives that's got to be dealt with. Uh, perhaps not surprisingly, the Lithuanian president was uh, absolutely uh, hammering Russia and China. Uh, the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, saying that. Uh, China is increasingly running up against NATO, whether it be in Africa, in the Mediterranean, or more specifically in the Arctic, uh, as they're trying to encourage, uh, uh, sorry, as they're trying to engage more. So uh, this is absolutely uh, building a narrative that we are heading towards perhaps conflict. Uh, and Jens Stoltenberg went on to say in that little uh, ex intervention there that uh, you know China is also rearming at a pace that NATO really can't keep up with, and that's got to be stopped immediately. So uh, it's all threats, and mostly empty threats, it seems to me. But I, I think the NATO message is more for the domestic audience than the uh, international one. Yeah, I think he was giving two messages. There was the verbal delivery, and then there was the sign language, and the sign language said that he didn't really believe a word that uh, came out of his mouth. Yes. Uh, now, David, uh, we're just going to end with a personal appeal for you, for, but uh, we obviously are short for time, so just uh, go ahead with this. Yes, yeah, so this, this is um, an appeal for information. It relates to Quarrio's uh, residential home for children in Scotland, which is located in Bridge of Weir, not far from Paisley in central Scotland. Um, the reason it's a personal appeal uh, is shown in this, this newspaper here, which is... Uh, the Fife Journal um, from 1931, a tragic affair at Cooper, a young woman fatally injured, uh, bursting of a boiler in a uh, town council house. This, this, this young woman was in fact my aunt. Her name uh, was uh, Mary Wallace, she, Mary McGiffin, when she was born, known as May in the family because 
Uh, her mother was also called Mary. And she was she was killed in this explosion. It was caused by, um, she was moving into a new house. She was um, cleaning the house before the family moved in. The pipes were frozen. There was no water in the system and the boiler exploded and she was very seriously, seriously injured, died uh, an hour later. There's a photograph here of her with her older son, which is who's called Andrew. Um, and uh, the youngest son was only seven months at this point. Uh, now the family, he, he was the same, the, the, the kids were basically abandoned by the father at this point. And my grandmother and mother who was then uh, 12, 13 years old, um, uh, they looked after them and, and, and raised them. But in uh, 1941, my grandmother died. My mother by this point was in, in digs in Glasgow, uh, learning to become a nurse, she was a student nurse. Um, and um, the youngest, uh, youngest boy, Dennis, was still a bit young to be out on his own. So she, my, my mother made strenuous efforts to get him into Quarius, which she, she believed to be a fine Christian organisation, and so it was when it was set up. But by this point, abuse had crept in, and there was quite a bit of, 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 of physical, uh, uh, emotional, um, and then, or maybe a little later, sexual abuse. Uh, in some of the houses within the within the the uh, organisation. Um, now, uh, the young the young man um, Dennis, he was born in nineteen thirty. Um, he went to Quarries in nineteen forty four, um, and in nineteen forty six he he was found um, um, uh, ill. It was it was put down to an asthma attack, but when he was checked later in the day. Uh, he wasn't fully conscious, and uh, the doctor su suspected a cerebral hemorrhage. He was taken to uh, the Royal Alexander Infirmary in Paisley and died 2 a.m. the next day, and is buried in Hawkhead Cemetery in Paisley. Uh, I'm looking for anyone who might have known him between 1944 and 1946 in Quarriers Homes. Now, it's it's a long time ago, and anyone who, who might remember him will be fairly elderly now, but it's still possible some information's out there. So his name was uh, Dennis McGiffin Wallace. Um, he was 16 when he died in 1946. Uh, he was in Quarriers from 1944 to 1946. So if anyone out there has any information or knows anyone who might have known him, uh, I'd love to hear because we're trying to find, find out just what exactly happened. Yeah, and uh, it's david at ukcolumn.org if you want to... Uh send any information through. Now, uh, we're going to end then with the uh, caption competition that we mentioned on Friday's programme. And this was the image. Uh, that was my pretty lame attempt uh, at uh, the caption. It's this big. Um, so, But uh, a number of you have sent uh, sent through. So we picked, we've chosen a few. Uh, and let's have a look at this one. Uh, Joe Biden saying, for a minute there, I thought you did have a gun in your pocket uh, to Boris. Uh, then uh, the next one from Pat Patricia, uh, I didn't know you'd been invited, Donald, says uh, Joe Biden. Uh, and uh, the next one then uh, from Justin saying, uh, it's Boris saying to Joe Biden, are you the fake one or just the stand-in? Uh, and uh, then we've got one here from, oh, and sorry, and Joe Biden uh, replying that he can't remember. Okay, fair enough. Uh, the next one from Fionn saying, uh, pull my finger, Joe. There are quite a lot of people sent through the pull my finger joke. Uh, and uh, Biden saying, but I'm not wearing a mask. Um, so, okay. Uh, the next one from Chris, uh, where did you get that from? I'm starving. And Joe Biden's got a 
uh, Cornish pasty in his hand and Biden saying, find it on the beach, Boris. I think it's a seashell. Can I take it home? Uh, and uh, then uh, the next one from, Re oh, actually, uh, this one we're going to keep for extra uh, because it's pro possibly a little uh, controversial for the uh, main news program. So we'll keep the last one uh, for extra, which will be in uh, a few minutes on the UK column live stream. Okay, excellent. Well, a big thank you to all our viewers and listeners and a very big thank you to people who have sent us gifts recently because uh, we've had some some uh, wonderful things given to us. It's extremely kind and we take the sentiment that uh, people are appreciating what we're doing. So thank you very much for that. That's it for today's news. If you can uh, stomach it, I think. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah. as we said, five or 10 minutes uh, on the uh, uh, UK column live stream for extra. Otherwise, we'll see you at 1pm as usual on Wednesday. Indeed. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye.